Getting sober requires a lot more than mind over matter, a lot more than willpower. It's about leveraging the support around you. People in recovery typically need a mix of medical help, emotional support, and changes in lifestyle to manage their addiction, not just mental determination. As both a therapist and someone embracing the recovery lifestyle, there's one tool I always recommend to people needing extra accountability, Soberlink. Soberlink is a high-tech breath analyzer system designed to help you get and stay sober. And here's why I love it. You'll test the same day every day, eliminating testing anxiety. Friends and family receive instant test results, helping you rebuild trust and preventing relapse. Accountability is a part of that, and it's something to really be embraced. Devices have built-in facial recognition, so your support circle knows you're testing, and tamper-resistant sensors flag any attempts at trying to beat the system, so your sobriety is never questioned. So let 2024 be your best year yet. Visit Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M to sign up and receive $50 off your device. That's Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M. And let accountability be your guide. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Addicted Mind podcast. This is episode fifty. My name is Dwayne Osterland, and I'm your host, and I'm also the founder of Novus Mindful Life Institute, Family Counseling and Recovery in Long Beach, California. If you or someone you know is struggling with any of life's challenges, please reach out to us. You can find more information about us at theaddictedmind.com forward slash help. Okay, this is a milestone episode. This is episode 50. And I have a great guest today. His name is Dr. Ken Adams, and he works with people who are struggling with porn and sex addiction, but specifically deals with people who have struggled with parental enmeshment. And that means relationships that are a little too close or overbearing, And so Dr. Ken on this episode goes into talking about what that is, how he works with that. I think this is an area of addiction that doesn't get a lot of attention. We look at the trauma of addiction, and when we look at the past, we see a lot of people who we see abuse, we see neglect, obvious neglect and obvious abuse. But with enmeshment, it's a little bit more invisible and a little bit harder to see. So a lot of times it gets missed. So I'm really happy that Ken is going to come on the show and uh, talk about that. So before we begin, I have a favor to ask. If you are enjoying the Addicted Mind podcast, please go to iTunes and rate and review us. That really does help get us exposure and gets this podcast out to people who can use it and benefit from it. And it spreads good information about addiction treatment. So I'd really appreciate that. Okay, let's begin this episode. All right, everybody, welcome to the Addicted Mind podcast. My guest today is Dr. Ken Adams, and he is going to talk about, I think, a very important topic in the world of addiction that really, I think, gets underlooked a lot, and that's about parental enmeshment and that interaction with addiction. And so, Ken, you want to introduce yourself and tell a little bit about uh, the audience a little bit about you? 
Sure, Duane. Thanks for having me. Nice to be on your very helpful program. Well, yeah, I'm a licensed, a PhD licensed psychologist, and I've been working in the field of addictions and trauma for many years. I'm here in Michigan and uh, have an outpatient practice, and I do a lot of teaching and so forth. I have a couple books out on the topic, Silently Seduced, When He's Married to Mom. And I ran, a, I stumbled on this topic. I was trained to work with children and adolescents. It was in a program for de- uh, developmental psychology and child psychology. And little did I know it prepared me to work with injured adults was having that background. So I learned very early that these early woundings in childhood that come from the big categories, which I was taught about in graduate school, was abuse, abandonment, neglect, a little bit about enmeshment, but not much about enmeshment, when in fact enmeshment's a big issue, particularly in the sex and love and porn addiction uh, arena. And so as I transferred and moved into working with adults, I remember working with a man who was seeing prostitutes compulsively. And I was early in my career, and I thought that therapy was giving advice, and of course it really isn't, because nobody listens to me anyways. Right, but, exactly. So he asked me, he said, well, how do I stop? And he was a, oh, I don't know, he must have been a 45-year-old man at that time and been through a few marriages and and, uh, nothing worked. And he was living with his mother. And I had been trained a little bit in uh, looking at children who were school phobic. And what we learned, of course, is they were they were too anxious to leave their, their mother or their caretaker. And we d- I did learn some from the family system therapy that families could be too close. So I instinctively said to him, just move out of your mother's house, for goodness sakes. And to my surprise, he did. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I was astounded that the compulsion to pick up prostitutes dived nosedive. He stopped feeling compulsive. Now, we know, as you do, that long-term addiction requires a lot more than just a cathartic moment of freedom. But I began to notice the link between enmeshed parental systems and addictive disorders at that point. Well, my first professional article uh, out of that case in 1987. So I've been working on this topic since 1987 for your listeners. So so this is like, because when you, I think this is something that people don't realize. You know, we talk about like abuse. That's really obvious. We talk about neglect, but this is almost on the opposite side of that. So people who don't, who are listening, aren't trained in psychology. And when you say enmeshment, what are you, what does that mean? Yeah, very good question. I'm glad we started right off with that. So yeah, so families families function with uh, degrees of uh, cl- closeness defined by warmth, commun- you know, uh, open communication, togetherness, and also they de- they're defined by their separateness, their freedom to be their own people, not to be obligated to the loyalty of the parent or the system at a cost of their own independence. And the most functional families tend to have a mix, a kind of a balance of that. And so uh, neglectful families or abusive families uh, tend not to have much parental functional oversight. Enmeshed families have way too much demands for closeness, loyalty, sometimes jealousy at outside friends or prohibitions against outside friends. And if the child, the child is linked to the parent as a surrogate husband or wife, kind of a further development in that system, say one of the parents is lonely, and turns to the children, oh, oh, honey, you can listen to my problems now, my loneliness, even my sexual frustrations. Unwittingly, they turn the child into a surrogate husband or wife or sexualized boyfriend or girlfriend. That child begins to s- submit, sacrifice, 
and remain, become the loyal lover to the parents. So that that enmeshed system that's demanding loyalty may further turn to one child to weave them into a parental, uh, to an assignment of a, of a parental or a surrogate spouse. So enmeshed systems are defined by prohibitions against separateness, too much demands for loyalty and closeness, guilting, sometimes uh, punishment and even physical punishment when the child tries to move away, manipulation of other family members to make the person trying to have an independent life feel guilty. So it looks like it's close and warm and fuzzy, but in fact, a lot of the members are there by excessive guilt and loyalty, and they're angry and resentful. And that's the trigger for compulsion. If I'm trapped here, well, by God, I want my freedom. So I'll go out and I'll act out sexually, or I'll go out and binge on alcohol and drugs, or I'll go out and binge on food because mom, dad, you can't control this. So we know that systems where the child's abandoned or neglected can produce addictions kind of as a compensation, right? Soothing, comforting. Right, right, yeah. But you're correct. We don't assume that necessarily when we see a family system that looks close, but in fact, it's enmeshed. And the line is crossed. I'll kind of try to make it as simple as possible. The line is crossed when the demand for loyalty costs the child and the adult child their own independent strivings and their own life. So they can't be loyal to themselves, their own spouse, or even their own children. They must place their parent or the parental system above everything else. And so then they get they get stuck in that. So they kind of move in from childhood. They've got this enmeshment, and then they move into this into an adult, and then they're kind of but they're still stuck in this parental relationship. Is that what's going on? Well, they still feel loyal and guilty. So they could be living across the country from their parent, but still be in, feel engulfed, enmeshed, smothered, and entrapped, feeling as if they must continue to organize around the needs of the parent at a cost to their own adult life. So they often report feeling smothered, feeling engulfed, feeling trapped. And so they have a hard time with commitments. So if you're a spouse or a partner or a friend of an enmeshed man or woman, they, they struggle to make commitments. And they make, make commitments last minute because I don't want to feel trapped. So yeah, so if the feeling of being trapped and obligated. You know, there, was, um, there was a study done, I don't know if you, you recall this, many years ago now by two psychologists. They looked at 50 couples who had been married for seven to 10 years and they reported high satisfaction in their marriage. And they wanted to know what they did that was so successful. So they surveyed them, not great science, but still good good stuff. And they turned it into a book. Right, right. And they asked the, they, they asked the couples to rank order what they thought was the contribution to the success of their marriage. And you saw things on the list you'd expect, you know, good sex life, common values, time away from the kids, good communication. The number one thing the couples reported themselves as in, as the, in the rank order was separation from the family of origin and having become their own man and their own woman. Now, that is stunning to me. Right, yeah. But it, but it makes a lot of sense. And I would argue that relational marital satisfaction, among other things, is linked to how much emancipation emancipation you have as a man or a woman from your family. Now, you might 
see your family regularly and be very emancipated. You might only see your family once a year and not be emancipated. So it often has to do with the internal narrative of how you hold that. Are you the parent's loyal lover and good boy and, or good son or good daughter? Or are you your own man and your own woman committed to your life, your spouse, your children first? Right. And you know what I've, I've seen too is like when people are uh, struggling with this, that a lot of times when they're coming in and they have addiction and they're moving through this, this is almost hard for them to recognize or have want to see if that makes sense because of that kind of weird loyalty. I don't know if that's something that you see or it's hard for them to know that they're enmeshed. I don't know if that makes sense. Well, I think you're saying two things, and I think they're both accurate. One is it's hard to know that they they view the closeness as normative, right? And that they don't report it as as a, its own stressor per se, even though if you dig down and you ask them, how do you feel after a conversation with your mother and father? They invariably report guilty, angry, resentful, I want to get away. It's common, common retort. So, but they don't often see this. It isn't as if the parent has beat them, although sometimes physical punishment can be part of the retaliation, but not not necessarily that common. But and also, I I think they have tremendous loyalty, and they they have been, if, especially if this starts in early childhood or even adolescence, they have been so trained to remain obligated and loyal that they feel tremendous guilt to even consider looking at it. So they may have a spouse who says, look, and I'm tired of your mother and father running our marriage. I need you. And, and they'll fight. And the couple will fight about the intrusive parent and the enmeshed man or woman who might also be a surrogate husband or wife, if it's gone too far, will defend the parent at the cost of the marriage. So a lot of the people who enter into uh, therapy counseling, or even my workshops that I do for men and women, they do so often at the push from the spouse. Sometimes the spouse says, that's enough. It's You need to choose. Right. They get to that point where they have to do something. Yeah. You're going to, you're going to stay married to your mother or are you going to, are you going to marry me? Or are you going to stay loyal to your father and your family or are you going to be loyal to us? I've had enough. Now, it isn't always that simple and that clear, but there seems to be a breaking point that pushes people through that consciousness. But you're correct. They fight it. They resist it because they feel so much guilt and they feel so responsible. The issue is one of the issues is feeling responsible. So they've been assigned implicitly in that role. You must take care of me. Right. Right. You must take care of us. So it, it almost is indoctrinated, if you will, in the identity of the person. And so it feels familiar. And the spouse is saying, well, well I, I don't want you to be so responsible to them. And he or she can't automatically unhook. It, is, it isn't like an outside stressor. They can say, oh, that's a problem. It's, it's part of their identity to be so responsible. To the parent? Yes. So how does then addiction start to work into this? this kind of system that's going on? Yeah, it's a good question. So if you'll let me, I'll, I'll talk about sex and porn addiction as a focus. Definitely. Because it's a common uh, denominator when we look at addiction issues here, not the only one. But it, so if you think about what we just described, you have a man or a woman who now feels burdened by his mother or father and family of origin 
and now is in conflict with his partner, romantic partner or spouse. And so he has no freedom. Everybody is demanding in his mind or her mind obligatory responsibility. So both now feel intrusive and engulfing. He says, I need freedom. I want freedom. Where do I turn? Well, I'll turn to sex and porn. I can hire a prostitute. I can have an affair. I can look at porn. I can masturbate. And oh, nobody's making demands on me. I'm free in these moments. Now, obviously, if they're addicted, they lose their freedom pretty quickly to the compulsion. But the payoff of being able to discharge all that resentment and all and and feeling free becomes so seductive to them that they become addicted to the outlet. So it's a kind of a counterbalance, right? Even though addiction, we we know addiction leads ultimately to being trapped by your own pleasurable pursuit, it still is the outcome, the, the path that leads them to feel that they can be free. So as affairs don't require commitments, prostitutes only require payment, porn, masturbation, there's a sense of no demands on me. So that's the link. That's the driver in that. So if we look at a group of sex of sex and love addicts, we could find this enmeshment issue as a common denominator in a high percentage of them. I don't have any science for you, but it comes up pretty regularly. I'd say probably of the, say, the, the men and women who have come to my workshops over the years, I'd say at least half who come in with enmeshment issues have this addiction issue. Yeah, that seems to, I I resonate with that as well with the work that I do in the sex and porn addiction treatment. I see a lot of this and and it's definitely takes a, it, it's challenging to work with them because it's so distressing for them to begin to take that, well, first breaking from their compulsion, but then also breaking from that enmeshment and dealing with all of those, those guilty feelings, the shame. Yeah, it's definitely, I think I see the same thing. And I think that that rings true to me as well. Yeah. So if you think about addiction, particularly sex and love addiction, as a compensation to, say, abandonment or abuse, you know, if somebody feels neglected, hurt, they carry that into adulthood, the sex addiction becomes a source of comfort, kind of a replacement object, a new attachment in which I try to be the one in control. Different with enmeshment, the addiction becomes the, perceived gateway to freedom from being so burdened by attachments. And so when you look at the um, research, the developmental, uh, famous developmental psychologist, uh, Eric Erickson did, he said when he looked at adolescents and young, young adult men and women, he said that those who made the best of their opportunities, in other words, those most functional, were those who could both attach to their families and separate from their families. So really, attachment means you have the ability to do both, to be close to somebody without feeling engulfed, and I have to submit. And I also can leave and separate from somebody and not be frightened that the love is going to be gone when I return. And so people with enmeshment issues can't do that. So if they try to move too close, it feels too smothering. So they keep a distance from the very person they love, some, some level of disengagement. And then they might go off because they're lonely into an addictive behavior pattern. And also they can't go too far and be in their own world because they feel guilty, almost like a force field. They have to come back. So they're kind of trapped in what we call an ambivalent state of attachment 
one foot in, one foot out. And that's a very, it's a common description of the men and women who come in. Okay, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So how do you start to help these individuals? I mean, when they start to kind of realize, okay, I got to do something about this, what's the first steps they've got to take or how do you kind of help them? Well, so we have to, as you know, as a therapist, you you have to help people move from what we call pre-contemplative stages, meaning they're considering it might be an issue because that's what you're asking. Okay, maybe they're willing to consider it as an issue. Now, how do you move them forward? Well, very delicately. <laughs> you have to be very careful. And a lot of it is education in the beginning. And uh, so listening to a podcast like yours, just on their own time, without anybody pressuring them, uh, reading the books I've written, reading, looking at some of the videos I have on my website, anything that is educational in nature that gives them a chance to sit with it independent of feeling as if somebody's making them do it is a good way. So education, sort of psych, what we call psychoeducational kind of formatting is the most helpful way to move people from pre-contemplative, I'm thinking about this to, well, okay, there is an issue. And if you can move them to that, then you want to do some more regular therapy around helping them to begin shifting out of internalized guilt, responsibility, and loyalty, and to set up boundaries. No, mom, you can't complain about dad or your sex life to me again. That that We're not doing that. Or maybe you don't call them as much or come over as much. And you can get someone else to change your light bulb. I don't need to run over and do that. My wife and I are going out for our anniversary, et cetera, et cetera. There has to be external boundaries and internal shifting about the way they hold the story. And that takes some time. And um, certainly as a therapist, you don't want to push that. Because if you push it too much, they will view you as a threat and they'll leave you. <laughs> right, right, yeah. Rather than the parent. So you have to be very delicate and, and honor the fact that they will feel guilty. One of the things I tell everybody, and I'll share it with you, I'm a parent. My son's now 16 and, you know, I, he's, he's moving. And his movement is out of the house, not, not, not closer to my wife and I, right? And I can feel that. And I can feel... And so I, my wife felt at first when he kind of moved away from her, when he was younger, you know, I don't want you hugging me anymore at school, <laughs> you know, the calm, the calm. And I can feel it now that my, the guy I used to play catch with all the time, he's not, doesn't have time. He's got a girlfriend, you know, and I can feel the separation. And one of the last tasks of parenting is to absorb the loss. You cannot burden your child with the demands to take care of your feelings of grief or sadness that your child is moving out. That is the final act of parenting before you become sort of a consultant and, and, uh, and uh, sort of peers, if you will, later in life. But, but the parents who refuse to do that burden their children with having to stay too close. The parent's job is to grieve the separation of their son or daughter out of the realm of the home. The final act of a good parent. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Is to move through the suffering and turn to somebody besides the child to take care of that. And that's tough as parents. I'm a, I'm a parent as well. And, and you have to have that self-regulation to not do that because you, yeah. you, you, you love your kids. You want them, but you're right. You gotta, you gotta, you gotta hold it and uh, let them go and be that, be themselves. That's definitely so well said. It's a hard act. Yeah, it's a oh, hard act of parenting. I tell you, 
It should be its its own support group for parents. <laughs> I, I definitely agree. So I, I and I feel and I understand why most parents are not malignant. They're not trying to trap or intrude on their kids. Although some are quite conscious of this. Let's not let's not forget that. And those are a little those those situations are a little more difficult to deal with. Or sometimes the whole system has such a meshing, the whole culture, the whole system, either the family or the culture, uh, has a meshment as sort of normative, which makes it even more difficult to make that transitional space, both as a parent and as the adult child. Right, and that that's such a process. So let's talk a little bit about, you know, you have some workshops that you do for people who are struggling with this. Can you talk a little bit about that and, sure. and how that helps? Yeah, so I, I've been wanting for many years to design a specific uh, workshop, what we call an intensive therapeutic or educational workshop. I mean, I have a long weekend workshop for both men and women separately, in which the, the focus is very specific on assisting them to disentangle the internal representation, their internal feelings, their internal the way they narrate or tell their story, right? People tell their inter- their stories about their parents. So we help them to sort out what is what should not have been there. That was not supposed to be your burden. We help them separate internally in the workshop from the contractual demands of loyalty at any cost. So they, they come out, if you will, with a new sense of, oh, no, here's the way I'm going to relate mom and dad. And, um, and they also learn to set external boundaries. So in the workshop, we're working on internal, sort of changing the way they hold the story and external boundaries if their parents are still alive. They can find out about that. They can go to, a, I've got a couple websites, but I have one now specifically called overcomingameshment.com. One word, overcomingameshment.com. So I have listed on there, I have some of the traits of the mesh sons, the mesh daughters, and mesh families, I have something in there for parents because I think parents are also losing themselves in these enmeshed dyads with their children. They've lost their own identity. You know, where are they going besides just being a parent? And so we have a section on that. And in there, they can look up the workshops and learn more about it. So that's overcomingameshment.com. Great. I'll, I'm going to list that on our website as well. And I'm also going to recommend your your books too, When He's Married to Mom and Silently Seduced. I think those are so well-written. And if anybody's struggling with this or you think you're struggling with it, maybe pick them up and, uh, and read them. And I'll, I'm going to link those on the, on the website as, as well. So is there anything else, if anybody's out there listening to the podcast and they think this might be an issue for them, what would you want to tell them? I'd say, which is the new subtext of my website, you can break free and still love your parent. Both are possible. And that's what they want to know. That's what they want to know. Well said, Ken. I think that is what a great message. Definitely can totally relate to that. So thank you so much. Great to, great to be here. Yeah, thank you so much for coming on. I'm going to put everything on the website so people can, can see it. And I just really appreciate your time. You're welcome. All right, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Addicted Mind podcast. As usual, you can find all the show notes at theaddictedmind.com forward slash 50. I will link to Dr. Ken Adams' website 
as well as his books. And if you're interested in this topic, I highly recommend reading them and getting a copy of them. I think they're well-written and they have a lot of good information. So I would definitely encourage you to do that. Once again, if you are enjoying the Addicted Mind podcast, please rate and review us in iTunes. That really does help and I really appreciate it a lot. So I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day and I will talk to you next week. I'm Madeline, and I'm the host of the Happiest Sober Podcast. I got sober in my 20s after a decade of gray area drinking, and the greatest plot twist of all time was realizing that alcohol, the thing that I thought made my life the most happy and fun and exciting, was actually the exact thing preventing me from living my happiest and best life. My mom is 40 years sober, and she joins me on my podcast very often. I like to call her my part-time co-host, and I also bring you solo episodes where I share my top tips, tricks, and mindset shifts in sobriety, and lots of how to's for navigating all the things sober from weddings to parties to holidays to bachelorette parties to trips. I'm also joined by so many guests who come on and share their sober stories and they're all so, so inspiring. I'm here to show you that life doesn't end when you quit drinking. In fact, it's very much the opposite. And no matter what your relationship was with alcohol, life can be the absolute happiest when you're sober. New episodes come out every Tuesday. You can listen to Happiest Sober Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.